We've been talking about change, and we've been talking about transformation, and uh, we've been going about it a little bit differently for, for many of us, actually. Uh, we've been going about it, actually getting to the foundation, the core of how change and transformation comes about. And especially for many of us who grew up in church, the way we go about it is radically different from sort of what we had thought. See, we change the same way. Say it with me, if you remember. We started the Christian life. We change and, and transformation occurs when we pursue it in a similar way that we began this journey. What do I mean? We began this journey, the Christian life, by saying, God, I repent of the idols and other things in my life that's more important than you. And I believe, I place my faith in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so for the last four weeks, literally, we've been trying to define what does it mean to repent of idols and what does it mean to have faith in the gospel. And our starting text was Mark chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, okay? And we'll just flash it up there just to, just to go back and revisit that once again. Uh, Mark 1, 14, 15, 16 says, Jesus came along and preached the kingdom. This is how you enter the kingdom. And he said, repent and believe the good news. But this is also how you advance in the kingdom. You repent and you believe the good news. And for two weeks, we spent talking about repentance of idols. And the last two weeks, we started talking about what does it mean to believe in the gospel. Are you getting an idea in a sense of what the gospel is? Yeah? Are you getting an idea in a sense of what the gospel is? The gospel has very little to do with. Okay? It has some, but very little to do with Jesus Christ died for me, for my sins on the cross so that I can go to heaven. That's a small part of the gospel. But as we said, belief in that gospel doesn't really bring about transformation and change. Because when it comes to day-to-day things, day-to-day things that we face, day-to-day things that we encounter, belief that someday I'm going to die and go to heaven, wherever that place is, doesn't bring about a whole lot of motivation. So we've been trying to get at this, this thing, the gospel. We've, we've hit it in many different ways. And if you've been here when I've talked about the kingdom series, the gospel is on a cosmic scale, transformation and change of all things, right? And what we've been talking about the last two weeks is gospel in terms of more of a personal, individual level. What does this transformation and change look like within us? And so we've been trying to define what the gospel is. And good news is that the Bible actually, Paul, defines in the book of Romans many, many times what the gospel is. And look how he defines the gospel. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of this good news, the gospel about Jesus Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This gospel or the good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. Everybody say, God makes us right in his sight. Ready? God makes us right in his sight. That's the gospel. Okay? This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scripture says, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Then the question becomes, well, what, uh, what is it about this faith? What did Jesus do? Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For no one can ever be made right with God, the gospel, by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. What is the gospel? Gospel says that you and I are made right with God. 
And what does that mean to be made right with God? That means that Jesus Christ has done something so that a wall, a barrier, a hindrance has been removed, and now we can have fellowship with God. Now we can be accepted by God. Now we can be embraced by God. Now we can be in God. And as we've been talking about for the last two weeks, this is as practical and everyday as it gets. Because all of us in here resonates with the sense of, There is something in me that desires to be accepted, to be affirmed, to be welcomed. There's something in me that desires that kind of a thing. Don't quite know what it is, but I yearn for that. I seek that. I long for that. And God says that thing that's in you, the most primary way in which that that, that need is to be messed, to be welcomed, to be affirmed, to be in, to be accepted, was with him. And so here's a lifelong search every single one of us is on. To be accepted, to be embraced, to be made right with God. And what do we do? Because of our failure to connect with God, we try and find that rightness or righteousness in everything and anything. And as we've been talking about, we find it in achievements, we find it in our looks, we find it in our intellect, we find it in our moral goodness, we find it, some of us, in our Christianity, we find it in all other things but God. And it leaves us at that place of going, why do I still feel a sense of distance from you, God? Why do I still feel this sense of a disconnect from you? You know, I, I've been talking with a lot of people this week, and, 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 and as they ask me, Peter, I'm trying to wrap my brains around this. How does this really work? Because this whole acceptance of God, being in with God, I, I just haven't, I'm having a hard time. Well, that's what we're going to talk about for the next two weeks. But I want to show you something. You ready? Because we've been talking about, I don't have the Tupperware thing to, with me today, but we're talking about what does it mean to be in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And I know that many of you that are sitting there going, I hear it. I'm sort of wrapping my brain around it, but oh, to where it grabs my heart in Christ, uncondemnable. What does that look like? What is it? Interestingly enough, Paul actually does this in the broad book of Romans, but this is what he does. In Romans chapter 7, Listen to some of the things that Paul says. Maybe you guys could relate, okay? Paul, a good Christian. You don't have to turn your Bibles. Look what it says. He says, I don't understand what I do, for I want to do what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Anybody relate? (laughs) Okay. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. Anybody relate? When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man or woman I am. Can anybody relate to Paul? That's Romans 7. And listen to what he says then. Then who, not what, who will rescue me from this Body of death. And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in Romans 8, 1, he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. Do you know what this means? Let me wrap it up for you and just kind of put it up there. You know what the gospel is? In Romans 7 and 8, the gospel is definition. Can you put it up there? Is this. The gospel says because of what Jesus Christ has done, even though we are more wicked and sinful than we we dare believe, in Christ we are more loved and more accepted than we dared hope. Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 8. 
Is that good news? Because, look, the reality is, if you are connecting Romans 7, I want to do what I want to do, what is good, but I can't get myself to carry it out. I feel like a wretched man, a wretched woman. I keep wanting to do that, which is, and you sit there and you go, that means I'm condemned. That means I'm disapproved. That means I'm not accepted by God. That means, etc. And Paul says, I know what that's like, but listen. Who? Christ has done something. What has he done? He has taken you out of sin and placed you in Christ so that you, the same you that says, I want to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. I want to be a good person, but I'm not. I want to be a better Christian, but I can't quite perform. Paul says, because of what Christ has done, Romans 8.1, you are uncondemnable. You are undisapprovable. And that is a fact, whether you like it or not. Whether you believe it or not. You are unconditionally accepted by God. Yes, Romans 7, you, okay? Us. I want to do what's good, but I can't. I keep messing up. But in Christ, I am in. Uncondemnable. And as I thought about it this week, why is it that we have such a hard time just embracing the gospel? Because it's at the core of everything that ails us. Here's the reason why we have dysfunctional relationships and we get ourselves in bad relationships that are literally destructive to us. It's because we're trying to find a functional savior in that relationship that says, you're in, you're accepted, you're welcomed. I like you. I think you're okay. Why are we workaholics? Why do we work ourselves to unhealthiness? Why? Because there's something about our work, our achievement, our success, money, whatever it is, that drives us. Because Jesus Christ might be your Savior, but that work, that's your functional Savior. That's where you get your acceptance from. That's where you get your, I'm okay now from. Parents' expectations. Why does it drive us to the point of despair? Because even though Jesus Christ is your Savior, your parents are really your functional Savior. And their expectations And you're crushed under it because their acceptance, their welcome, their affirmation at the end of the day is what really you long for. Why do we struggle with this? I'm not going to repeat a whole what I talked the last two weeks. Part of it is because we spent our entire lives patching up our own personal standard of righteousness. We spent our entire lives conditioned in a culture with relationships with family that says, because I can do this, because I look like this, because I've achieved this, because I have done this, now I'm acceptable to me. Now I'm acceptable to others. And God comes along and says, you don't understand. Romans 8.1, you are in by Christ, uncondemnable. And you say, God, I, I don't care. I function my entire life patching up my own personal standard of righteousness. And when I'm in Christ, even though I got in sort of based on your grace, It's sort of based on free, unconditional love. The way I continually live in the Christian life is I'm going to go right back to this mode that I'm used to all my life. I got to do, and I got to earn, and I got to perform, and I got to look, and I got to have you like. Why do we have a hard time embracing it? Personal standard of righteousness. Why do I talk about this? Let me just say this one thing, and then I won't talk about it anymore. If you want transformation to occur in your life, you have to know what your functional Savior is. It doesn't matter how many times you read the Bible. 
It doesn't matter how many hours you pray. It doesn't matter how many sermons you hear. It doesn't matter how many conferences you go to. It doesn't matter how many spiritual disciplines you have. If you do not know and identify your functional Savior, that thing that that when you were this big to when you are now, that thing that is your functional Savior, your personal standard of righteousness, unless you can root that out and identify it, you will not experience change. So what is it? What is it? What is your functional Savior? I've been very upfront with you guys. I tell you what mine is, and it's not very hard, you know. I get hundreds of verdict every Sunday. I go home. He did bad. He did good. He was all right. And I go home, and it is from Monday to Saturday a battle every second, every moment to go, God, my identity is not in what they think of my preaching. It's in you. Within the other side of me goes, Peter, you functioned this way for the last 10, 12 years in ministry. What is your functional Savior? What is it? Here's the second reason to why I think we struggle with this. In con- no condemnation of those who are in Christ. Unconditional love, unconditional acceptance. You ready? This hit me like a ton of bricks this week. Ton of bricks. I was floored. I was floored. You ready? You ready? Here's why we struggle with this. Ah! Because if it's true that Jesus Christ, if it's true that God in Christ has done all of this, he has loved us unconditionally, he has accepted us, he has embraced us, and no matter what we do or don't do, we are in, we are, because of the, 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 the free given grace of God, unconditional love, if that is true, then there's nothing that God can't ask of you. If it is true, and we embrace it, that God loves me like that, he has given me everything, I haven't done a thing unconditionally, I am uncondemnable in his sight. If that's true, then God can ask you for anything. There's nothing that he can't demand of you. And truth be told, we go back to Genesis and we believe the lie. You know what the lie is? The lie says, if you give God everything, he'll abuse you. If you give God everything, he'll abandon you. If you give God everything, he'll disappoint you. So here we are. God has given us everything unconditionally. We are in by grace of Jesus Christ. If we embrace that truth, See, here's the thing. As long as you and I, God, but I did that. That's why I'm favorable. But I did that. As long as we do that, we could hold God at bay and go, you can't ask me for everything. As long as he says, "Mm -mm, everything. Are you tracking? Now, how do we overcome that lie? How do we overcome that lie that says, but God will abuse me. God will, God will abandon me. If I give him everything, he is going to disappoint me. Look, half of you are sitting here today, and your Christian life is where it is because that's the lie that you believe. If I give God everything. And then you immediately go back to, look what happened to that relationship. Look what happened to that work. 
Look what happened in my home. Look what, and you have a list of things that says, look what happened when I gave God everything. Do you know why we go back to the cross? Do you know why we go back to the gospel? Because when that question and that fear comes up, the Bible says, look at the cross. Would a God like that, would a Savior like that who has done that for you, would, is he the same God that will then come and say, I'll abuse you, I'll abandon you? Is a God like that somebody that you can trust? Is a God of that kind of sacrificial, unconditional love somebody you and I need to fear because if we gave all to him, if he demanded everything, that somehow our life will be miserable, we'll lack joy, and we'll miss out on life. Are you tracking? So how do you overcome that? The gospel. The gospel. How do you overcome that fear that will then allow you to surrender and yield everything? That will then allow you to, to know that you are in Christ is the gospel. Go back to the gospel and the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel. Um, let, me give you, let me give you an illustration. You know, it's like if I, could spend, if I could spend the entirety of my teaching and preaching ministry, as I said last week, preaching about the gospel in 100,000 different ways so that you guys get a different facets of it and go, oh, the gospel, oh, the gospel, oh, I will have done my job. At the uh, beckoning of a, a pastor, actually. Anybody see a movie called The Three Seasons? <laughs> okay. Wow. Go rent it. It's not at Blockbuster. It's not at Netflix. It's not at any other stores. I actually found this cool little store right on Fullerton Avenue, like 1900. Anybody else go there? They have all kinds of foreign flicks and all kinds of like cool, obscure movies, you know? Three Seasons. Three Seasons is a movie about post-Vietnam War, okay? And as these four little, four little vignettes and different stories of inter- intertwining characters and their lives, so on and so forth. But there's one story. Do you realize that the gospel is portrayed in film all over the place if we just choose to see it? And this particular vignette, it's about a, a two, two characters. I just saw it last night, so it's still fresh in my mind, okay? It's about a cyclo driver by the name of Hai, H-A-I, cyclo driver. Okay? And a prostitute by the name of Lon. Okay? And here's essentially the story in that. They're both obviously come from poverty. They've both come from just destructive kinds of homes and that type of thing. Okay? And here's Hai trying to make a living as a cyclo driver. Well, he falls deeply in love with this beautiful woman named Lon, who's also a prostitute. She's selling her body to wealthy clients in expensive hotels. And she, even though hates the life that she lives, and even though she wants to get out of it as soon as possible, longs for the day, longs for the day when she could herself live like her clients, right? Feel like she could belong in that world. And there's this conversation, there's this conversation where she says to Lai as they're talking, uh, to Hai, she says, you know, you and I will, you and I, we're, we're never meant to be part of that world, but I'm, I'm going to do whatever I can to be a part of that world. And so there's a deep bit of rudeness growing inside of her because even though she resents her lifestyle and what she's doing, she desperately longs for that. Now, hi. Cyclo driver. He's trying to win her affections and she's not even given to the time of the day. So here's what he does. He goes on a race, cyclo driver race, right? And he wins $50, 50 US dollars, okay? And he knows that that's her going rate. So one day as he's picking her up to take her to the next line, he says, I'd like to spend a night with you. She says, you can't afford it. He says, actually, I've won this cycle of race, and I'd like to spend a night with you. She, fine, okay, well, you know, money is money, so she essentially agrees. And so there's this scene, okay? It won like three awards in Sundance, you know, so it's, 
But it's PG-13, so there's nothing risque, nothing, so don't worry about it. But there's a scene where they're both in the hotel, right? They're both inside the hotel. And he's given her a, a nice, beautiful gown, a wedding gown. And he says, can you put it on for me? She puts it on. He says, actually, take off all your makeup. Take off all your makeup. She takes off all her makeup. She's in this beautiful wedding gown. She comes out, and she says, well, let's get it over with. And he says, no, actually, I, uh, I just want to watch you sleep. Just, just sleep. And the reason why he did that is because she's told him, I long for one day when I can just sleep in one of those hotels and feel like just one of them, just normal. Because she was kicked out every night, 10, 11 o'clock, after her tricks were done, right? And so this scene goes where she basically just lies down on top of the bed and high, sits far enough and just watches. I'm not articulate enough, so here's a synopsis of this scene and what the movie ends with by another writer. He has only purchased her as an actual guest in a place in the normal world she dreams of joining. And he asks only for this, permission just to watch her fall asleep. Slowly, comfortably, she falls asleep. And he's gone by the morning. Having demanded nothing of her except the chance to fulfill her longings, just a desire to belong. Something snaps in her. She finds she can't go back to her old job of prostitution. Why? Having experienced for the very first time someone who used his power to serve her, she gets a new sense of her own dignity. She's not the same person. She is transformed and changed by the grace of selfless love. Do you know why that's so powerful? And why when you and I watch movies like that, there's a part of us that goes, oh my gosh, who would do Jesus Christ did that and more for you and for me. And we fear him because we think he's going to abuse us. We fear him because he's going to rob us of joy. He says, I loved you like that. Philippians 2. I put aside every single power and authority I had as God, left the praise of angels in heaven, and came down and became human being and died a death of a criminal. Why? Selfless love. To the degree that you and I are able to wrap our brains and our hearts around that is to the degree that we will experience change. What is the gospel to you? What is the gospel to you? How does this work in our lives? Well, if you're like me, you're hearing this story going, that's touching. But it doesn't make a difference. Because <laughs> it's the same thing, Peter. I know it in my head. I can't get it down to my life. I know it in my head. Can't get it down my heart. I am not condemned. Great. I know that. But you know what? My acceptance, my affirmation, my boss, I can see him. I can see her. They matter a lot more than some God that I need to faith in to see. I know that I'm not condemned. I'm absolutely accepted and that I don't need to fear judgment and that he loves me. I don't need to fear him. But Peter, I've got this relationship. I've got this thing. I can't give it up. I can't let go. How does that work? Anybody curious? How does that change occur? Okay. I got an email from a good friend. Hope he doesn't mind. I'm just going to share a portion. Listen to what he wrote. 
And maybe you guys are going, that's me. What does it mean to be in Christ? This whole thing that you're talking gospel. The Tupperware illustration is great. I get it on a conceptual, rational level, but honestly, not yet on a heart emotional level. But that's a different subject. By my recollection, you just picked up the me Tupperware and took it out of the sin Tupperware and into the Jesus Tupperware. How do we get to that point? Do you know how we got to that point? Moment in time. No. Yes. Just like that. Just like that. But I didn't do anything. Of course you didn't do anything. That's why it's called amazing grace. He just took me out of sin. Just took you out of sin. Put me in Christ. Put you in Christ. Just like that. Just like that. Isn't that amazing? See, the whole there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus thing got to me. I definitely have a hard time accepting this concept. No doubt due to my more legalistic religious background. Anybody else? Clap if this is you, by the way. (laughs) Okay. But all the rules and regulations that I rail against and reject from my church background get absolutely negated by the concept that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes. So it seems that all the religious rules, regulation, legalism, worry, fear, all boil down to one thing, to be in Christ. Yes. But how? Actually, he doesn't say that. He says, he says, but this is what he means. He says, but does it mean that we're in a meaningful relationship with Christ? Is that what it means to be in Christ? Kind of. Does it mean that we are centered on him and focused on what he is doing? Kind of. And then he says, oh, wait, I don't know. That smacks of more doing things and not simply being in Christ. Does it mean that we've accepted him as our Lord and Savior? Does it mean having faith that he's God and that what he did? Or does it simply mean having hope that he is who he is, even if we don't always believe it? Maybe it means we know that we need him. We're just seeking him. And on and on and on. I know he expresses the cry of your heart and cry of my heart. Let's find an answer to these questions. In Romans 8. Turn your Bibles with me. Romans 8. Okay? How do we embrace and live out this in Christness? How do we how do we embrace this? How do we embrace these truths that affect us even at emotional levels in some ways get embedded in our hearts? How do we appropriate this? By the way, those of you that have heard me preach on Romans 8 1 or Romans 8, and you're going, Peter, I think you preached on this like three years ago. Yeah, I did. And then you preach on it like two years ago. Yeah, I did. You're preaching it again. Aha. But I'm not preaching on the same thing. Okay? Are you kidding me? Do you know how deep the Bible is? You could spend your entire life studying one chapter. That's how deep it is. That's what's so cool about it. So in case you're sitting there going, I've heard this sermon before. No, you haven't. Okay. Romans 8. Here we go. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in me, uh, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned the sin in sinful man. Look up here real quick. Remember? Passive work of Christ. And this is so important because I want to—I don't want to skip over this because if you don't get this, you're going to feel like, I feel like I'm hearing some sort of an inspirational message like you're special, you're good, God loves you, so believe it. No, no, no. Before we get there, Paul says, God took your sins, God put it on Jesus, and he became sin, and he took the entire wrath and judgment of God, and he was condemned. He was forsaken. He was shut out. Why? So that you and I would never be forsaken, condemned, shut out. What else did Jesus do? 
For God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful man. And verse 4, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. And verse 5, those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. Verse 4 and 5 is absolutely key to experiencing life transformation. Just to get home, uh, hit home at this, I want to go ahead and put up verse 5 the way it's originally written, okay? It's going to sound a little strange, but literally translated, this is what verse 5, Romans, Romans chapter verse 5 sounds like, okay? Is it up there? It literally says, for those being according to the flesh, mind the things of the flesh, but those according to the spirit, mind the things of the spirit. Boy, that makes perfect sense, Peter. If you say it with me, it'll make more sense, ready? For those being according to the flesh, mind the things of the flesh. But those being according to the Spirit, mind the things of the Spirit. What in the world is Paul talking about there? Literally, here's what Paul is saying. There is a close connection between minding and living. There's a close connection between minding and living. Let me put it this way. There's a close connection between thinking and behavior. There's a close connection between thinking and behavior. In other words, what Paul is saying there is what we've been reiterating throughout the sermon series. Whatever it is that you have, minding is going to affect how you live. Now, here's the thing. In the English word, even when you use the word mind, not as a noun, but as a verb, like mind your own business. We're not just saying, stop thinking about my business. You're saying, mind, stop being preoccupied. Stop being obsessed with. Stop being kind of, you know, uh, constantly thinking about it. Stop having your mind captured by it. Minding literally means to be riveted on something, to be preoccupied with something, to think about something constantly. Minding literally means that thing that you do when you have nothing else to do and your mind sort of trickles to that very thing. What somebody said when he said solitude is what you do. Solitude, what happens in solitude, reveals a true aspect of your worship. Well, there's nothing else to do. No music to listen to, no songs to, no songs, uh, no, no books to read, no, no talking, no relation, whatever. At that point, what does your mind naturally tail off to? Paul says, that's what you're minding. Here's the thing. Paul says, Whatever you mind, whatever you're preoccupied with, whatever you are, you are thinking about, whatever you are riveted on, whatever captures your imagination and thinking, that is going to affect how you live. That's going to affect your behavior. And Paul says, listen, this is so huge. When you mind the sinful nature, and in Greek, the word literally is flesh. And it's not talking about some sexual perverted behavior in the fringes of society. Walking according to the flesh is basically a mindset that says, I will find self-salvation. I will be my own savior. I will earn. I will do. I will do what I need to do to build my personal standard of righteousness. That's walking in the flesh. And the result of that, Paul says, will be lust, sexual morality, greed, envy, jealousy. You know what Paul is saying? Here's the beginning point of transformation. What are you minding? What are you riveted on? What are you preoccupied with? What captures your imagination? You become that which you worship. 
You worship materialism, you become fashion plate. You worship mind, things of beauty, external beauty, you become. Whatever you mind, Paul says, is what you're going to live. And here we come all over again. What is your functional Savior? What is your functional Savior? What is the thing that your heart and your soul naturally gravitates towards to say, I'm minding that. I'm thinking about that. I'm preoccupied that. I'm riveted on that all the time. Beginning of transformation is to go, what is that thing? Identify it. And by the power of God and help of the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about a little bit this week and next week, root it out. Root it out. Church, how are you doing? Come on, let's just be honest here. How am I doing? Let's not play any more religious games, you know. The whole Christianity thing, I'm doing my thing. Let's get really, really raw and honest here. And let's ask the question, what are you minding on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis? What are you riveted on? What do you think about? And then there's a positive, okay? That's don't. He says, do not mind the things of the flesh. And then Paul says what? Do something. He says, do mind the things of the spirit. He says, don't be riveted on, preoccupied with, focused on, capture imagination and the things of the flesh. But he says, do be riveted on the things of the spirit. What are the things of the spirit? I'm opening up a can of worms here. I ask, what are the things of the Spirit? I'm going to talk about the Holy Spirit, and I get a thousand different answers from many of you guys going, the Holy Spirit is about spiritual gifts. It's about gifts. It's about prophecy. It's about tongues. It's about God's miraculous works. It's about leading. It's about guidance. It's about, and etc. Do you know that Bible is very clear about what the Holy Spirit, what the things of the Holy Spirit are? In other words, what he is minding, what he is thinking about, what he is preoccupied with, what the Holy Spirit is riveted on, what captures the Holy Spirit's imagination. Do you know what that is? Jesus told us. There's a couple steps here. Hang in there with me. Listen to what Jesus said. Okay? You don't have to turn your Bible. It'll, it'll come up here. John chapter 15, verse 26. When Jesus enters the Holy Spirit, when the counselor comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. John chapter 16, verse 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine, and he will make it known to you. All that the Father, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Do you know what the things of the Spirit are? Do you know what the Holy Spirit is preoccupied with today? Do you know what the Holy Spirit is obsessed with today? Do you know what the Holy Spirit is constantly going, ah, that, that. Do you know what that is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. If you were to talk to the Holy Spirit right now and say, what are you thinking about? He'll say, Jesus. The beauty of Jesus. The glory of Jesus. No, aren't you thinking about like guiding me and directing me? And the, No, no, Jesus. What? What's on your mind? Uh, uh, Jesus. How about yesterday, Jesus? How about for all eternity? Jesus. Oh, let me. 
One of my favorite authors is a guy named J.I. Packer. Anybody like J.I. Packer? In this book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, great book. Get this book. Buy this book. Phenomenal book on the work of the Holy Spirit. By the way, for some of you sitting there going, but that's not what I want the Holy Spirit to do. Too bad. Okay, because this, this is so foundational, so fundamental. See, this is why. Life transformation. I'll get to that. But listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. I remember walking to a church one day, one winter evening, to preach on the words, He shall make me known, or He shall glorify me, the things of the Spirit. Seeing the building, listen, he says, floodlit as I turned the corner and realizing that this was exactly the illustration my message needed. Listen. When flood lighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you don't see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not seem, not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you can see it properly. Or to think of another way, it's as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulders. See, this is why I needed hand, handless. The Spirit stands behind us, throwing light, throwing light over our shoulders on Jesus, who stands facing us. So you get that picture? This is you, okay? This is you. This is the Holy Spirit right here, okay? This is the Holy Spirit right here. Oh, this is Jesus, I should say. Holy Spirit right here, and this is you. And you're looking, and you're seeing this massive light, but you don't see where the light is. Listen to what he says. The Spirit's message to us is never, look, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, it's the Spirit, but always look at him, see his glory, listen to him and hear his words, go to him and have life, get to know him and taste his gift of, uh, of joy and peace. The Spirit, we might say, is the matchmaker, the celestial marriage broker whose role is to bring us and Christ together and ensure that we stay together. Do you know what he's saying? Do you know what the Holy Spirit's doing? Constantly, if you were to listen, if you were to connect, he says, isn't Jesus beautiful? Isn't Jesus amazing? Don't you want some more of him? Stop here. If you are not in tune with the work of the Holy Spirit, you will never experience life transformation. Why? You will never be captured by the true beauty of what he accentuates. Look at me. And put it this way. The reason why I think we fall short of the gospel. He loves me like that. He gave that for me. He did that for me. You can't conjure this up on your own. You can't go, I want to believe. I want to take. You know how that happens? The Holy Spirit comes and says, see clearly, he's beautiful. And then he comes and illuminates. Embrace it. Embrace it. This is why I'm going to shock you right now. When Paul says, Galatians 5, Okay? Listen to what he says, Galatians 5.16. So I say, live by the Spirit. This is what he's talking about. And you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires, that word there is epithumiae, lusting. Remember, when we think of lust, or hear the word lust, we think of the, uh, but lusting literally is inordinate desires, to crave, to capture imagination, to want, to long for, inordinate, unreasonable desire. He says, the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. Since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. You know what Paul's saying? The sinful nature, 
It desires, it lusts after what the sinful nature desires. And literally Paul is going, you want transformation and change? The Holy Spirit, I'm going to say this and then I'll pass. The Holy Spirit is lusting after Jesus. To which you go, oh, that just sounded, oh, oh, oh. Thank you for the terrible image in my mind. I have no idea what that looks like. But here's what it's saying. Listen, listen, listen. The Bible is literally, Paul is saying, you know what? The Holy Spirit has an inordinate desire and unreasonable catch imagination for Jesus. And he is saying, to the degree and to the extent to which we connect with the role and the work of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as he has this inordinate desire for Jesus and the beauty of Jesus is the extent to which you and I will see the truth of the gospel. And it's the extent to which we will see life's transformation and change in our lives. Does that make sense at all? I need you. Does that make sense at all? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's work and ministry. For those of you, sorry, that came thinking, you know, prophecy in tongues. The Holy Spirit's primary ministry, you guys, is to remind you and I of the truth of the gospel. His primary ministry is an interpreter saying, hear clearly the truth of the gospel. He loves you unconditionally. You are in. You are accepted. You're his beloved. And then he illuminates that. That's why the Bible says, and he will make known that truth to you. He will manifest that, it says in NASB. He will manifest that truth to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit's role is, God, in order for me to change, I know that I need to be absolutely riveted by the gospel. I need to be captured by the beauty of the gospel. I need to see Jesus as who he is because it's in that that I will desire to live my life in a way that captures him. But God, I have a hard time seeing that because I have all these lies about who God is. Holy Spirit, truth clarity. He's beautiful. He loves you unconditionally. He is for you. Illumination. I know you can't do that on your own. So he in his power and in his work comes and allows our hearts and souls to embrace that which just our head and intellect can only embrace. Does that make sense? Here's the key. The Holy Spirit is not forced Holy Spirit is not wonder-walking power. Holy Spirit is a person. Do you know what that means? To get to that place of saying, God, I want to see Jesus that way. You've got to get to know the person of the Holy Spirit, who the Bible says you can hear. My sheep know my voice. They could hear me. And get to that place where you are in a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, living a life sensitive to his leadings, sensitive to his promptings. See, this is why relationship, relationship, relationship. And this is the reason why if you don't start from the point of I am uncondemned, I am in Christ, how are you going to trust the Holy Spirit who comes along and says, trust me, but I give your life to you. But I, relationship, relationship, relationship starts from the fundamental point, the gospel. Even though I am more wicked and sinful than I dared believe in Christ, I am more accepted and loved than I dared hope at the same time. This is why Romans chapter 8, when you read through it, you know what the role of the Holy Spirit is? Over and over, Holy Spirit comes and reminds you of the gospel. Look at some of these verses. I'll put it up there. We'll come back to these more next week. Look what it says. Verse 14, Romans 8. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
The Spirit of God, our sons of God, what does He do? The Spirit comes and He leads you and He guides you and He reminds you, you're a son, you're a daughter, you're a child of God. Begin there, sit there, embrace that. And then he goes on, verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. The Spirit comes and his primary role, not spiritual gifts, all that, his primary role is if you will hear and know him, he will remove a sense of fear and rejection and condemnation that often becomes a barrier and hindrance to our relationship with God the Father. He says, you're a son, you're a daughter, there's a child. You want one more? Romans 8. It's throughout. Verse 26. The Spirit help us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. You know what Paul is saying there? Because you're a child, because you're a daughter, because you're a son, and you're not an employee to a boss, you can go to God in confidence. Parker doesn't need my permission to jump on my lap. I could be working on my sermon. He knocks to that door. He comes up and he's banging on the computer screen. I'm going, my sermon! Because he has no concept besides, you're my daddy. And regardless of what I've done, I'm going to go to you anytime I want. And the Bible says, that's what the Spirit does for you. you. Look, you and I think of Jesus as our advocate up in heaven, interceding for us. And when we mess up, you know, Jesus says to God, God, please... Please, I died for them. Will you, for, come on. We have this mental image of Jesus. That's a, No, you know what Jesus says? The Holy Spirit says, they're your son. They're your daughter. They're your child. They can come to you in confident prayer about anything, anytime, regardless of what they've done. This is why if you have a bad Saturday, but a good Monday, that God doesn't all of a sudden answer your prayers on Saturday, because you had a bad day on Saturday. You're his son. You're his daughter. Let me ask you guys a series of questions. How do you know if you're walking according to the sinful nature, if you're minding the things of the Spirit, or you're minding the things of the sinful nature? How do you know? Well, the easy question, what are you preoccupied with? To which many of us are like, I'm not that self-aware. So let me go ahead and give you guys. Because, <laughs> come on, it would be so easy, right? If you go, okay, stop minding the things of the sinful nature and start minding the things of the spirit. To which you go, I know exactly what my functional savior is. I know exactly that thing that gives me identity. So I, many of us are not. So I ask these questions again and again and again. Ready? There's anger, and then there is forgetting the spirit anger. Anger, we all get angry when things go wrong. Anger, we all get angry when things don't happen where we would like to. But there is forgetting the spirit, despondent anger that says, I'm so mad I could just die. I'm so mad I'm just going to lash out. Why? What is it that's being blocked? What are you being blocked from having that's causing this anger? Mining the things of the Spirit is remembering, I am his child, I am his son, I am his daughter. And I do not find my salvation in this. There's worry, and then there's forgetting the Spirit worry. 
We all worry about things. We all get anxious about things. But there's worry that's despondent. There's worry that says, I, I can't function. If, if, if that's ever taken away, if that ever, what are you saving as your functional savior? Despondent worry is being blocked from or the fear of losing something that you think you absolutely need in order for you to live. Third, then there's despondency that says something like, my life is not worth anything. I don't want to live anymore because you failed at something. Remembering and minding the Spirit is reminding yourself and myself, I am a son, I am a daughter of God. The Holy Spirit, come reveal, clarify, bring these truths to me, Lord. And know that my identity is not found in what I do, what I don't do, what I fail, what I fail not. Some of us, we're overworked, over busy. Why? I need to speak very personally to some of us this morning. Ready? Some of us are so busy and overworked, maybe in the things of God, because that's our way of working off our guilt and debt from a mistake that we've made. You're here today and you're trying to be a good person. You're here today and you're trying to do all these things. And the reason is because you're saying, God, I did that terrible thing. Or I'm doing these terrible things. And the only way that I feel like I'm con- a good person or Christian is if I work hard enough. Oh, oh. That's the crux and the epitome of mining this, mining the sinful nature. Are you forgetting who you are? And then there's one last thing I want to share today, and that's this. Mining the sinful nature could also look something like this. We could fool ourselves into thinking that because the Spirit uses us to change people, that we're being changed. That was me. Correction. It many times still is me. Do you know how often I catch myself going, I must be changing. I must be being transformed. I am becoming more like Christ. Why? Well, look at all these people that are changing. Look at all these people that are being transformed. Look how much they're being blessed until God, the Holy Spirit, comes and grabs a hold of my heart and going, their transformation and change has very little to do with your transformation and change. How are you doing? How am I doing? Do you know the person of the Holy Spirit? Yes, He guides you. Yes, He leads you. Yes, He gives us spiritual gifts. Yes, He does all those kinds of wonderful things. But Jesus is primary ministry. He stands as a floodlight right above Jesus and says, Look how beautiful He is. What motivation is there to change? When you experience this powerful, transforming grace, your delight becomes what delights Him. Your joy becomes giving Him joy. Your pleasure becomes what gives Him pleasure. Jesus Christ, Romans 15, 3, so intertwined himself with us that he did not please himself. Do you know what that means? That means that he so intertwined his desires and joy and passions and pleasures with us that what brings us pleasure, what brings us joy, the central motivation becomes, and I hope I've even made sense today because it's not one of those emotionally charged, wow, that change and transformation comes, child of God, daughter of God, one last try. 
when you look at the cross and you see the absolute beauty and majesty and glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you and recognizing, God, I can't just do that. I kind of know that, but recognizing, God, I need the power and the work of the Holy Spirit to become that floodlight influence, shine his beauty on me, God, and give me the ability to see and be captured by that beauty in such a way that I would say, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to live that? Why would I want that relationship? Why would I want to have that as my functional Savior? When I have you. When I have you. Bow your heads with me. God, the truth is, for some of us, we're afraid. God, the truth for some of us, we're afraid that if we yield, surrender, give our all to you, of what that will mean. And my prayer for those of us this morning, God, is that you would, by the power of your Spirit, so shine and so reflect the beauty and the glory of Jesus. That for some of us, perhaps, we would madly fall in love with him all over again. For some of us, God, we're just not even aware of the work of the Holy Spirit. And as we've learned today, God, this this is something that we can't do on our own. It's a work that you, Holy Spirit, do in and through us. And my prayer simply for those of us is, Holy Spirit, will you open our eyes? Holy Spirit, will you open our eyes? When you work in our hearts to embrace the beauty and the glory of the gospel. And for those of us that are walking, being transformed and changed with the absolute beautiful message of the cross of Jesus, God, our desire as we take of the communion is we rejoice in that. Enlarge and increase the pleasure and the joy arising within our hearts as we think about you, Jesus. And the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my bread broken for you. Take it in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup, the cup of the new covenant, representing the blood of Christ shed for us, reminding us that he became sin. And he said, whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. With the service, please come forward. As you come forward to take communion, 
For some of us, I want to just go and give you this one prayer. You know what communion is? Communion is, as we take it, it's, it's what Jesus did and what he is for us becoming tangible. So will you pray this simple prayer as you take it? Jesus, become real to me. Jesus, become just as real to me as this bread is. Jesus, as I take of the elements, will you take what I know in my head to be true? What I know should be true in my intellect. We bring about transformation in my heart. That's what communion represents. So come forward. I encourage you guys to come to the side aisles and then walk back towards the center so we can be a bit orderly. The Lord invites us. Come. Isn't Jesus good, church? Isn't Jesus wonderful? Isn't Jesus glorious? Hallelujah. 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 Thank you, Jesus. God, help us to be at that place, to be absolutely ravished by you, to have every single of our longings to be met and quenched and satisfied by you. Give us a glimpse of your beauty, Holy Spirit. Do this work in us. And now, know that you are covered, absolutely drenched by the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord. Go forth and live your life this week in confident joy that for those who are in Christ, you stand uncondemnable. You stand today undisapproval. You stand today absolutely accepted and embraced by the creator of this world. Let that truth free you to live a life of absolute generosity, radical, radical generosity and faith. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, you guys, hang around, enjoy. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Take care.